0: Check out JoinColossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Zach Foss, an investor at Arenet Capital, and today we're breaking down MTN Group. MTN is the largest mobile network operator in Africa and one of the 10 largest in the world. It has over 270 million subscribers, operates in 20 different markets, and is one of the largest fintechs in the continent. To break down MTN, I'm joined by Benjamin Isaac, founder and chief investment officer at Brizo Capital. We unpack their mobile money business in some detail, contrast the development of telcos in Africa with what we've experienced in the US, and explore the competitive dynamics of operating in Africa. Please enjoy this breakdown of MTN. Ben, thank you for joining us to break down MTN Group, a business that you're intimately familiar with, but one that's likely somewhat uh, foreign, no pun intended, to our audience. So maybe just to start at a very basic level, what is MTN Group?
1: Zach, thanks very much for having uh, me. I'm really happy to be here. But it's a really fascinating business story, and it points to the commercial and technological future for large parts of the world. But as you say, because it's primary market, that being Africa is barely even an afterthought for global capital markets, it's a story that many market participants don't know well. At our firm, for example, we're global investors and not solely Africa specialists, but I have invested in the continent pretty consistently for many years, and I was still unaware of many facets of the business before I really dove in again. So just to sort of set the stage, MTN is one of the 10 largest telcos in the world by subscribers. Just under 300 million at last count, and the largest in Africa by a wide margin. Because of Africa's demographics, that telco is likely to keep growing subscribers for literally decades, as we'll probably discuss later. However, MTN is also one of the largest fintechs in the world in ways that we think are not well appreciated by most investors. For example, in 2022, MTN's mobile money business processed around 220 billion US dollars of transaction value, That's which is larger than Square's cash app. More broadly, we think it's possible that some of the same positive changes that, for example, Alipay created in China and UPI is allowing for in India are already starting to happen in an African context through dominant mobile money platforms like MTNs. And so in our view, that's consequential and worth unpacking all on its own. But a lot of MTNs' commercial opportunity comes from the demographic and technological backdrop of the African continent as a whole. So if you're open to it, it, it may be worth a detour to discuss that first.
0: Yeah, look, I think it's impossible to appreciate the scale and trajectory of this business without diving into some of the African demographics. So maybe just lay the groundwork there to better contextualize the business.
1: Yeah. So Africa is an absolutely massive continent, two-thirds the size of Asia in terms of land mass divided among 54 different countries. It also has a huge amount of diversity, including economic diversity, among those 54 countries. For example, North Africa and the Maghreb are very different from sub-Saharan Africa. The Africa this discussion will be focused on is sub-Saharan Africa given MTN's markets. But even within sub-Saharan Africa, there's huge economic variety between countries. Among the somewhat less developed countries, you have success stories like Kenya, where U.S. dollar GDP is up 9x since the year 2000, and GDP per capita is up 5x which contrasts with places like Mozambique, where, unfortunately, GDP per capita is still less than U.S. $500 per year and has only grown by 2% per year since the year 2000. On the other side of things, you also have relatively more advanced economies in Africa as well, on the more extreme end of the advanced successes would be a place like Mauritius, which pre-COVID had tripled GDP per capita since 2000, but started from a much higher base as well, such that it has purchasing parity adjusted per capita GDP roughly 30 to 50% higher than Brazil or China. Again, something we think is not particularly well understood. And you can contrast that to say South Africa, which is absolutely a relatively advanced economy, certainly in the context of the African continent, And it's grown strongly versus where it was in the year 2000, but all, actually more than all of that growth came during a a massive post-2000 boom, and where GDP per capita has actually declined meaningfully since the year 2011, so something of a lost decade. What is generally true across Africa, though, is population growth. Fertility rates differ meaningfully between countries, but the UN projects Africa to be the last continent with a growing population within the next 20 to 30 years. As of today, the total population of Africa is estimated at 1.4 billion, or 16% of the world's population. According to those same U.N. estimates, median expectations for the population of Africa by 2050, or 2.5 billion, which should be about 26% of the world's totals on the U.N.'s numbers. Put more bluntly and over a time horizon more relevant to any reasonable investor, over the next several decades, Africa is going to be the supermajority source of population growth for the globe. And with more than 40% of the entire continent below the age of 15 versus 16% in Europe or 23 in Asia, that's a lot of prospective new mobile subscribers. Another key point is urbanization. All 10 of the fastest growing global cities are African at this point, but that's largely a catch up dynamic. Something like 40% of Africa is urbanized today versus 55% globally, 65% in China, and more than 80% in the U.S. This tends to help incomes for those that move to cities, but it also moves them away from family and into an area with much better network coverage. The incentive to adopt a smartphone and use it more is pretty clear. Meanwhile, basic telecom penetration in Africa is still very much in process. Some markets can be as low as 60% who have even a feature phone. So just a basic voice connection. And even smartphone penetration is in middle innings with only 50% of mobile subscribers in Africa expected to have a smartphone by the year 2025. And with only one third of that being a 4G or 5G subscription. The upshot for companies like MTN is that it is almost a demographic inevitability that this market enjoys decades of population growth, which represents an opportunity for MTN to grow subscribers strongly for that period to the extent that it plays its cards right. If Africa manages to leapfrog in some forms of technological development, then the story gets even more dramatic.
0: So now that you've done a good job establishing why this market is so exciting from a demand and demographic perspective, MTN Group in particular has some unique attributes and a very interesting story, but I presume there are a handful of companies that are benefiting from similar tailwinds. How do you kind of think about MTN in the context of some comparable companies or other aspects of the value chain?
1: There's absolutely a a lot of companies that will wind up benefiting from this tailwind. In particular, there's plenty of other publicly listed companies that are exposed to the drivers of African population growth, urbanization, internet adoption although each will have their own unique variations. Barty Airtel is a listed subsidiary called Airtel Africa that has roughly 130 million subscribers and trades in London. It's expected to spin off its mobile money business in the next one to two years, which makes this a good space to start learning about now, we think, as that will likely provide incremental attention and information flow, particularly to the theme of African fintechs. Vodafone and Orange, both substantial African operations and are among the largest telcos in the world, Elsewhere in the value chain, there are tower companies with economic exposure, including American Tower, which in a small way has exposure to Nigeria and one or two other markets, as well as pure plays like Helios and IHS, which trade in London and New York respectively, which are entirely focused or mostly focused in the case of IHS on providing connectivity services and infrastructure to the African continent. You also have listed local subsidiaries of many of the large African telcos, including MTN, by the way, but those often trade on smaller exchanges like in Nigeria or Ghana and are likely not practical for most of your audience to access, although we think they're fascinating to study and the disclosures are often quite good. And for us, at least, it really enriched our understanding of the business and of the industry. So MTN may not be utterly unique in benefiting from some of these tailwinds, but what we do think makes it unique is it's the biggest and most liquid pure play, first of all. So it's a great lens through which to analyze the space. But more than that, we think it is a fairly rare breed in that it's extremely well-run, leads the way on pushing the sector forward on data adoption and fintech offerings, and is the largest fintech at this point in Africa as well, competing with a company that your listeners may have heard of, Mpesa, which is really focused almost exclusively in Kenya, whereas MTN's fintech offering encompasses most of of MTN's different markets at this point. And finally, with an upcoming analyst day, MTN is a really timely company to discuss because we're about to get a significant amount of additional information about the company across both its telco business and its fintech business.
0: And so I think this is kind of a nice time now to talk about the evolution of this business and how it kind of became what it is and where it ranks and its size and scale, not only locally, but internationally, so how did this business come to be, and you know, if you think about the evolution, where are we in that today?
1: MTN was effectively born almost exactly 30 years ago in 1993 for a consortium of South African investors and one or two government-affiliated or parastatal entities, including, by the way, Coos Becker, who's sort of of NASPERS fame, and... He was even served as a director of the company for a number of years before deciding to focus his financial resources more on his pay TV business. He's actually expressed some regret in retrospect on having to sell his MTN investment before its time, so to speak. But it spent the first four years of its life growing fairly rapidly in South Africa as the second mobile wireless license granted in the country but by 98, it was actually starting to expand into other geographies, mostly within Southern Africa. By 2001, it had been granted a license for wireless operations in Nigeria, and then really started to mushroom across the continent. So you have a company that really is proudly South African by origin, but over time encompassed in excess of 25 different markets across Africa and for a while the Middle East, although in more recent years they've started to pull away from that. And today, you have a business that has roughly $13 billion of revenue, to give you a sense of where the company is in terms of revenue split. In 2022, roughly 38% of group revenue was coming from Nigeria call it 25% from South Africa, 24% from West or Central Africa, roughly 10% from Southeast Africa, and the remaining 3% from Middle East and North Africa, which is kind of the tail end of a series of markets that they've been exiting over time and that really don't represent a material portion of the revenue or earnings power. In terms of the top countries, aside from Nigeria and South Africa, Ghana, And Uganda would come in at number uh, three and four respectively, with Cote d'Ivoire, Cameroon and Benin rounding things out. So reasonably concentrated between Nigeria and South Africa. And given the rate at which Nigeria is growing versus South Africa, from a country perspective, we think it's fairly likely that the action will increasingly be in Nigeria plus some of the more dynamic markets in West and Central Africa as well as Uganda.
0: So the basic revenue mix is going to come from voice, data, and mobile money or fintech. What does the makeup of the business look like today and what is it going to look like? And I guess, what is just their basic revenue model, right? I'm accustomed to the way things work in the US, but perhaps it's different in Africa. This is, in some sense, going to
1: be going back in time for you, plus adding in a little bit of a fintech business simply because you are much earlier into the adoption of data across their business model, there's a meaningful delineation where voice still represents a big chunk of the business. And the other difference, as you rightly call out, is that fintech is a decent mix of revenue and an increasingly large mix of profitability as well. So they disclose total revenue, but then they talk about service revenue. Service revenue is The same revenue item, excluding their device line, which is effectively a pass-through for subsidized devices that they use to keep people on network, which some of your listeners may remember when Verizon and AT&T offered subsidized devices for signing two-year contracts. And so today, on 2022 service revenue, voice represents about 43% of total. Data is roughly 37% of service revenue, and fintech is about 9% with the remainder being odds and ends of things like wholesale, SMS, digital, etc. But data and fintech are really the two primary growth areas of consequence. And to give you a sense of where they were a number of years ago, back in 2018, as a, for example, voice was about 60% of the total service mix, and data about 24%, fintech at about 6%. So the mix is changing fairly rapidly, and that's in line with what they call their ambition 2025 plan, where they hope to have voice be substantially less than 50% of total revenue, data more than 50%, and FinTech more than 20% of total revenue. They're making good progress on that front, but we will wind up seeing. The reality is, is that data consistently grows extremely fast, and FinTech, until significant currency headwinds occurred this year, had also been growing very fast as a revenue item, However, I will say that fintech continued to grow in terms of transaction value and number of transactions extremely quickly during this period. So it's entirely plausible they'll wind up hitting their ambition 2025 revenue mix.
0: U.S.-based listeners are probably accustomed to paying somewhere from 50 to $100 a month for internet and comparable for voice and data. I know the ARPUs are quite different in Africa Clearly, they have a massive population, so the addressable market is large, but where is the starting point for how much people pay for these services, and what's the trajectory of them, and where they can go, and how fast they've been growing?
1: The ARPUs range across MTN's markets anywhere from between $1.50 to about five fifty dollars per month, so East Swatini, which is a very small market, I think is a little bit closer to $6 or so, but it's a tiny fraction of the total. The average across all of MTN's markets, we think is somewhere in the mid-twos range in terms of monthly ARPU and US dollar terms, which is not nothing from a local budget perspective. When a lot of these economies are talking about GDP per capita of $2,000 or more per year, you're talking about maybe 1% of an individual's budget and even less than that of a household budget, depending on how many earners live within a given household. So when, as and if you start having a less pressure from dollar headwinds and as data consumption continues to grow, we think there is scope to grow ARPUs, although we'd hesitate to be too prescriptive. But the idea that there could be another 50 cents to $2 worth of ARPU growth gradually over time just on the basis of data penetration going substantially higher. doesn't seem implausible to us simply because in most of MTN's markets, data penetration is only at around 50% within their subscriber base. And so as more people have smartphones and have access to 3G and then 4G and someday 5G, it's just going to become a lot easier to consume more data. and particularly as these markets have become somewhat more consolidated, we think there is some scope to increase total ARPUs, even though prices of data will likely continue to drop on a per unit basis into the indefinite future.
0: And so I can try to draw parallels to the TCI story with John Malone in the US and how that critical infrastructure became the backbone for broadband across North America. Is there a similar kind of thread to pull on in how telecommunications networks were built and why they've evolved in such a way where fintech or mobile money is a big contributor to the way the business is going to be profitable going forward in Africa. Is there any interesting nuance to why the market is developing this way?
1: So it's a really good question. There's a lot of distinct differences between Africa and a lot of developed markets that you may be familiar with. And frankly, that I was familiar with before I started doing my research. You don't really have a significant amount of landlines or fiber to the home. The accessibility of infrastructure in general has been spottier almost across the board. With the exception of South Africa, which until recently really was the place in the continent that was seen as having very reliable power infrastructure. Generally speaking, if you were going to have wireless infrastructure, it needed to be grid remote. So typically that meant having a genset on site, which requires a logistics network to refuel that, maintain it, etc. And you don't really have uh, close substitutes. You know, no, Very few people had landlines. I think the number of landlines in South Africa 30 to 35 years ago was maybe only a few hundred thousand to a few million among consumers. So you're just talking about a really different scale of substituting or competing infrastructure. So the wireless ecosystem really winds up providing the super majority of connectivity services. It's unclear to what extent broadband to the home is going to wind up being a large market opportunity. MTN is very fired up about it, certainly, and they talked about it extensively on their last Capital Markets Day back in 2021. But even for them, they acknowledged that 95% of all broadband to the home opportunities were gonna wind up being fulfilled through fixed wireless access as opposed to some kind of last mile fiber connection. And that's just a profound difference. And some of that is, as we said, because of power access, but also because capital has historically been much scarcer. And so once these businesses become self-financing, it is extremely difficult to justify building out competing infrastructure, especially when you're often talking about ARPUs for the average subscriber, but between 2 and $5 a month, it's just very difficult to make those pass-through economics work, particularly on a traditional fiber setup. So between that and often fairly mobile populations that are not desk-bound, You just have a very different configuration of competing connectivity opportunities as well as a very different relationship between your subscribers and their mobile phone. It is often their one connectivity option. It is often now their primary entertainment option, especially once they have mobile broadband because they're able to stream things on the device if they're of sufficient means to be able to afford streaming multiple gigabytes worth of data, which can depend a little bit on the market. It's a very different, connectivity suite that the consumers have available to them. So it winds up making that mobile connectivity having a much more central place in the home for a lot of African families and individuals. That's also been part of why mobile money, which is the majority of MTN's FinTech offering, has wound up taking off. Mobile money is certainly not innovated within MTN, although they've certainly done a tremendous job of evolving the offering over time. It really started elsewhere in Africa with an offering called M-Pesa, which again, some of your listeners may be familiar with in Kenya. And the reason why mobile money works, and we should probably talk about the actual nuts and bolts of what mobile money is, is that there is often no banking infrastructure. And so if people wanted to safely store cash in a digital format or move cash quickly and reasonably cheaply, and safely across large distances to get money to family elsewhere in the country off of a city dweller sending money to family in more remote rural areas. Mobile money provided a tremendous opportunity that banks simply were not able to fill. There were and continue to be a trivial number of ATMs in most of these markets and bank branch penetration is comparably small. So in many cases, that leapfrogging dynamic really is at the heart of of why MTN is fulfilling a lot of the roles that it is within its various economies.
0: I know that you've spent a lot of time with boots on the ground in these markets, better understanding how consumers interact with the product. You spoke about discussing the nuts and bolts of the mobile money business, but can you just kind of help us to better understand how consumers are using this on a basic level? If we
1: look at it in sort of a revenue breakdown perspective, which is not really a perfect proxy for activity by any means. MTN talks about its basic services, its advanced services, and airtime advance, which is effectively sort of a short-term lending product that they offer. But if we put airtime advance aside, basic services is mostly what they call withdrawals and transfers, and then advanced services are things like remittances, bank tech type offerings, payments in e-commerce. Mobile money ecosystems are, are really defined on the basis first and foremost, of withdrawals and transfer services. So what is that? If you don't have a bank account, but you have PayPal, this is a rough proxy, but it's actually not terrible. You could do a lot with that if everybody else was already using PayPal in your community or economic environment. But you need to still figure out ways of loading money into your PayPal account because for Pretty much anybody in the United States, they're loading it up, either they have a card linked to it, card penetration is effectively non-existent in most of these countries, outside of a thin elite at the top, or through your bank account. And again, particularly when mobile money was first introduced in the late 2000s, I think 2007 in Kenya, there was really de minimis banking penetration outside of upper echelons of the economy. And so you would need to physically go to the same agent where you would get your prepaid wireless time. I'm paying a dollar for a gigabyte of data. You wouldn't be paying for data at that time, but you get the principal, I'm paying a, a dollar for some number of minutes worth of access and later on for data in addition. With that same mobile money agent, you would give them money and they would credit your account a comparable amount so that it could effectively serve as float for the mobile money system but also give you the ability to safely store your money somewhere that isn't just in your house. It also over time evolved into something where you could also send money to other users of the same system. And the way that at the time M-Pesa, now pretty much all mobile money ecosystems function is they're really dependent on mobile money merchants to provide the on-ramp and off-ramp into the ecosystem. Think almost living ATMs with a huge layer of value-added services on top over time, but you would actually pay money to withdraw in addition to deposit money in the first place, although over time, the model is trended towards free deposits and modest fee for withdrawals, and then there would also be fees for peer-to-peer transfers, which is the transfer services that I alluded to before. It's really amazing how much these things change an ecosystem once they become widely adopted. I remember this would have been, I think, late 2018, early 2019, I was walking with a friend of mine through Cabrera, which is one of the, they would call it a slum, it's sort of like a favela in Sao Paulo or Rio, a low-income neighborhood with a lot of informal housing, basically corrugated tin, and very limited access to government services, but mainly of economic migrants from elsewhere in the country, not you know inherently dangerous or something like that, just poor. And I remember walking through Kibera and really sort of fascinating because I'd never been to one of these types of neighborhoods before and watching my friend who had taken me there get his shoes repaired from a cobbler running one of the businesses along one of the side streets. And literally this cobbler who didn't even have a full structure is just maybe three to four sheets of corrugated tin that he was working under to provide him some some kind of uh, protection from the elements. Did a great job with my friend's shoes. And at the end, instead of paying with cash, my friend took out his phone and paid this cobbler through his M-Pesa code. And there was literally no physical transfer of money. And that was back in the late 2010s. More recently, we had one of my team members go to Senegal, which is a more recent enthusiastic adopter of mobile money. And over the course of a 10-day trip, he touched cash three times and not just in Dakar, which is the capital city, but also in smaller cities and more rural areas elsewhere in the country. It really becomes transformative in terms of what can happen once this flywheel starts spinning, but it's effectively a three-sided network. You need the merchants to be willing to accept it. Ultimately, that's kind of the the longer game, but immediately what you need are you need the users to be willing to accept it and the mobile money agents to be willing to be willing to sell airtime and deposit and accept cash so that you can actually have this entire ecosystem starting to function. And it takes quite a bit of effort to get it going. But once it's going, it really enables a pretty transformative shift in a number of different areas of the economy.
0: I appreciate the network effects of payment systems. There are kind of two topics I want to touch on. One just being, you've know, you mentioned M-Pesa multiple times how the market develops with that competitive dynamic there if there is one. And the other being the payment rails themselves, right? Visa and MasterCard are viewed as these incredibly deep-moded businesses that are impenetrable. Do they play a role in the mobile money networks of of Africa?
1: No, when it actually comes to ground-level commerce for the average African in most markets, with the exception of South Africa, and even then, that only can go so far, credit cards really aren't in the game. There's some efforts by MasterCard and Visa to try to insert themselves into the mobile money ecosystem over time. For example, Airtel's mobile money system received an investment from one of the credit card companies, but usually these are effectively closed loops in the same way that you couldn't really use your PayPal account to buy something from a merchant accepting square cash, to use an American comparison.
0: The one thing that I'm trying to better understand is how the different markets develop. I think, you know, you've told me in past discussions that these tend towards winner take most markets, which intuitively makes sense to me. But how does M-Pesa play into all this? Are there regional differences? Is there local competition? Just trying to get a better sense of the market structure.
1: Yeah. So every country is going to wind up being fairly different from one another. So M-Pesa is dominant in Kenya, has a presence in Tanzania and the DRC, and really has really struggled to find a lot of traction elsewhere in the continent. Even within places that its parent company Vodacom, which is a subsidiary of Vodafone, have a material telco presence. For MTN, its strongest market is Ghana, but then Uganda, Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire are some of their other strong markets. Nigeria, they have a number of fintech services, but only recently actually received regulatory approval to start rolling out their own mobile money system. So the regulatory realities, as well as the telco competitive realities of a given market, will often dictate some element of its competitive structure. So in the case of Kenya, for example, Airtel provides a strong but distant number to m and a strong but distant number to MTN in Uganda, whereas in the case of uh, Senegal, there's actually a Silicon Valley-backed startup that wound up successfully competing against Orange, which was the dominant telco there. So it really is highly localized in terms of what the competitive dynamic looks like from market to market.
0: We've talked about the business and varying levels of specificity is there kind of an architect behind the strategic moves needed to successfully scale this fintech business? And what's driving the capital allocation decisions that MTN Group makes?
1: So two different people, although they definitely are in close dialogue based on at least my impression, and i you know, the limited amount of time that I've been able to spend with them. But on the capital allocation side, you have the uh now not so recent, but fairly recent CEO, Ralph Mapita, who has dramatically simplified the structure of MTN. He's had a significant asset disposal policy, a genuine focus on ROE as a important target for the company to be hitting at a group level as well as at a country level, and a willingness to exit markets, even if it means sacrificing revenue or size, simply because those markets are just not a strategic fit for the company going forward. Ralph is a really disciplined guy who is focused on bringing global best practices to the company in a way that I've found very impressive and I've always found to be very open-minded to learning about opportunities, threats, different practices elsewhere, both in his markets and outside of his markets. But the discipline that he and his C-suite have on capital allocation has been genuinely strong and certainly strong relative to the legacy of MTN that I think you could fairly call somewhat more focused on empire building. On the fintech side of things, that's been historically a mixed bag, but recently, as MTN has been focused on what it calls its structural separation of its fintech business from the telco, it's had the architect of its success in Ghana, which is definitely its most successful money market, run by the gentleman who supervised that success, mm-hmm. a man by the name of Serene Diu. and. He went from running Ghana to running the entire MTN fintech ecosystem. And after this structural separation is done, there will be effectively an entirely different business unit with a separate fintech Topco that he will be sitting on top of and able to make the necessary changes, which in some cases may be fairly dramatic, to continue winning and evolving the service. I mean, let's be clear, MTN has had an incredible history of providing world-class service really throughout the life of the company. It was winning global awards for service quality as far back as the early mid-90s when it first started. But the necessary skills to offer an app-based fintech ecosystem or mobile money ecosystem are just dramatically different than the network engineers and studied gradual capital discipline policy that a more traditional telco needs to thrive, especially in a growing market. And on top of that, there's going to be a regulatory impetus to make sure that there is independence and verifiability between uh, MTN FinTech and MTN Telco. So it is going to be, I think, interesting to see what Serene's comments wind up being at this year's Capital Markets Day, but I can say with confidence that historically I've found him to be ambitious in scale and scope, extremely focused on best practices being implemented across various markets, and really trying to break away from a more studied telco pace of change, because frankly he recognizes that transitioning from a feature phone or USST-based mobile money offering to something that's app-based, and much more software and user experience intensive is going to require pretty dramatic cultural change versus what legacy MTN might be more familiar with.
0: I guess the idea of a a structural separation is not something that I'm particularly familiar with, at least in the vernacular of how we think about markets domestically. Can you kind of speak more to that decision and what that means for how they think about the future of their company?
1: So, I wouldn't want to speculate too much. The conversation around this started roughly at the same time that Airtel Money announced a transaction with TPG's Africa focused fund. And with the explicit stated intention of that Airtel Money business being spun out in a timely manner after the TPG investment. Based on current indications, that spin out process is likely to happen in the next, I would say, 12 to 24 months. I think it's safe to assume that given that Airtel Africa is listed in London, that they're very open to the idea of a listing in London or the United States. And that created a fair bit of pressure for MTN to also start highlighting and clarifying the role of its fintech within the broader group. At the same time, they were clearly anticipating some level of future regulatory scrutiny in terms of making sure that MTN fintech could be, for example, regulated like a bank if they needed to go in that direction over time. So the concept of a structural separation is really not so unfamiliar in the sense that you already understand conglomerates and nobody would find it bewildering for, say, Geico to place a large bulk order for C's candy within the context of Berkshire Hathaway to use sort of an American comparison. But the particular impetus for the structural separation goes beyond just... Localization of authority and pushing authority down the chain, you also have this desire to create a separate organizational culture and focus, in addition to that regulatory separability and the desire to really highlight
0: the value they've been creating inside of MTN FinTech. If I try to contextualize the size and scale of this business, maybe from a total payment volume perspective or GMV or whatever is the right way to think about it daily actives. How do you kind of think about the size and scale of what we're talking about here?
1: MTN's fintech business is amazingly large, in our opinion, considering the level of general attention that it receives in the wider world. This is a business that had 22 million active users at the end of 2017, and at the end of 2022, it was at 69 million users. In terms of transaction value, This is a business that did 220 billion USD worth of total transaction value year over year. And back in 2017, that was at roughly 55 billion USD. Transaction volume, similarly large. I mean, in ways that we just find really amazing. Two billion of total transaction volume back in 2017. And in the most recent period, they were doing 2.9 billion average transaction volume per quarter. So call it roughly 12 billion on an annualized basis and growing very quickly off of that base. If it were not for the fact that there is a large, significant levy on mobile money transactions in Ghana, again, MTN's strongest market, as well as significant currency headwinds in Ghana in 2022, we think that in absolute terms, FinTech revenue and transaction value would have been up really strikingly year over year. But if you just exclude Ghana for a second, this was a business that was up roughly 30% year over year in 2022, which, lest we forget, was a very difficult year for emerging markets in general, and Africa in particular. And we would just point out that through 2021, Ghana was radically larger than, most, than any other MTN market and still was actually growing comparably fast. And if you take a look at the most recent regulatory data that we've been able to find, Ghana appears to be back on its prior growth trajectory. So this is a business that's growing extremely quickly at scale and actually still has a very long way to go in most of MTN's markets, although we by no means want to suggest that it's a fait accompli that MTN will wind up having comparable success elsewhere. We're just optimistic on the point.
0: On the topic of levies, regulation, governance, Typically, Africa is perceived by Western investors to be a more challenging geography to invest in, Nigeria being a country with particular difficulties around getting cash out. Can you just provide a little bit of insight on how you think about investing in these assets and how those topics impact MTN?
1: Emerging markets are difficult in a variety of different ways, and Africa as a general operating environment, has a wide range of challenges, and I certainly would not want to understate those. But at the same time, I would make a few observations. First of all, these are businesses that have really managed to thrive under a very difficult decade for most emerging markets, particularly in Africa. MTN's Nigeria business has really become the leading light of the company, even during an extremely difficult period for Nigeria, And frankly, some very choppy regulatory waters for MTN and Nigeria back in the mid-2010s. I think mitigating a lot of the optical challenges of these markets are remembering that these are extremely important local participants in the economy. MTN is usually the largest taxpayer in pretty much any of its markets. And if it's not the largest, it's among the top five or 10 It's also had a pretty active campaign of localization where a substantial piece of, say, MTN Nigeria is listed locally on the Nigerian Stock Exchange, such that for the Nigerian government to act against MTN Nigeria, they not only would have to cut off service and communication capabilities for tens of millions of Nigerians that rely on MTN for communication services, but they also would be hitting at their largest taxpayer and one of the largest listed companies in their market and correspondingly hurting their large local asset managers. So the alignment is actually become quite strong. And if you just sort of want to look at some proof in the pudding, this past quarter was a really good example of challenging times in Nigeria a very volatile election, but also during a period where the government did a large-scale banknote conversion, and again, during the context of a Ukrainian conflict that has been putting inflationary pressure on a large number of markets. Despite that, data subscribers in MTN Nigeria grew the mid-teens. This is just fresh data from earlier in the day as of when we're recording this, and voice subscriptions were up high single digits. So, While I by no means want to suggest that these are businesses that will not struggle to some extent when times are difficult in these markets, and with the difficulty of these markets, they're not new to this, and they've really found ways to generate acceptable returns or even very attractive returns, even during difficult circumstances. The other point that I would make, though, is I would make the observation that Western investors have the ability to look through various forms of political risk, whether it be Chinese state-owned enterprises and variable interest entities, or something like, say, Mercado Libre, which is, by all accounts, an incredibly impressive company, but where 40% of their crown jewel fintech asset, Mercado Pago, is probably represented by Argentina, which, candidly, all of the difficulties in Nigeria are very significant, but I'm not certain that they're radically different than that of Argentina. And yet Mercado Libre is celebrated, probably rightly so, finds its home as a percentage portion of investors' portfolios, and commands a very rich valuation. My point is not that that's necessarily inappropriate, but simply that in the context of a diversified portfolio, it would be, in our opinion, inappropriate to treat these as uniquely risky jurisdictions, as opposed to just jurisdictions that require thoughtful risk management to balance out against what we see as the manifestly clear commercial opportunities.
0: I guess I'd note that Mercado Libre's U.S. listed company, MTN Group is not. Is there anything that kind of plays into the decision for these businesses to list locally versus access to the global capital markets by listing in London or the U.S.?
1: So I, I think in general, what we're seeing is that there's been a lot of Substantial re rate opportunity for companies that are willing to explore relisting in the United States. And we can't really say for certain to what extent that's going to be a sustained trend or something that's only going to happen for some period of time. But for a large company like MTN, they've historically viewed themselves as proudly South African. And over historically, that was a good home or good jurisdiction for them, at least in their study judgment. Over time, I think that as the Rand has become a more challenging currency to transact in, and the Joburg Exchange has really seen a lot of departure of foreign market participants, it's made it more difficult to get premium valuations or lower costs of equity capital by listing on the Joburg Exchange. We think it would make a ton of sense for MTN to explore relisting in the United States, or in London, or at least exploring in ADR. But we recognize that these are often extremely culturally sensitive conversations because of course, they're probably very proud to have this impressive company listed locally. That being said, again, if the goal is to lower cost of equity capital and generate strong returns, the fact pattern seems pretty clear in terms of where the relative valuation opportunity is. In terms of the local listings though, those are in some sense tactical. We're very confident that listing MTN Nigeria in Nigeria is not the optimal way to get a premium valuation for MTN Nigeria, but it's a very good way to make sure that local participants have a meaningful commercial stake in the development of that asset. And so uh, while we'd fully concede that it's a suboptimal structure, it has the side effect of doing a great job of aligning local stakeholders in a clean way.
0: So it seems fairly obvious that the demographics are in their favor. There are structural advantages in the footprint that the MTN Group's business has today, and the distribution advantage to get its mobile money product into the hands of its consumers. The trajectory of the business seems very healthy. But if they were to see their competitive advantages, where do you think there are kind of risks to the story beyond the complexity, and how could the business, you know, not reach its full potential?
1: Africa is a challenging operating environment. And so I, n- I never want to pretend that any of this is easy or guaranteed. And by the way, I'm very confident that Ralph and Serene would very much agree, as well as all of their peers. I've, I've never found the MTN team to be anything other than humble and very serious about the balance of risk and opportunity in their market. But if we go away from just sort of general market risk considerations, there's a few things that immediately come to mind. One is just execution this is a very large, complex organization, as you say. But a side effect of that is if they get distracted, they could potentially lose focus on things. I'm not especially worried on that. They seem extremely focused, but particularly when it comes to things like their fintech offering, the cultural change involved in having a mobile money business that is no longer operating like a telco or telco adjacent, and now operating like a digital services business that's in some instances literally competing against venture-backed companies is a real cultural change. And they seem to have done an admirable job so far, and I'm very optimistic that they will continue to do so, but it's by no means a given. On top of that, it's possible that you could wind up seeing a substantial competitive entrant in one of their major markets. But again, would just sort of make the observation that if there's an environment where people are excited to put billions of dollars in to create a competing network to say MTN Nigeria, wouldn't that also suggest that it's a market in which there's some real enthusiasm for MTN Nigeria as an asset and as an operating environment? So I would never want to say that the competitive dynamic of mobile is over, but at the same time, I don't think it's really fair to say that you're going to wind up having dramatic ARPU compression in the same environment where there's a significant amount of enthusiasm for the long-term opportunity within the African mobile context. Another point that I would make on that is, is that MTN has been pretty aggressive about actively lowering prices. At this point, they have done a really good job of bringing the cost of data in Nigeria, for example, their largest and most important data market, the price of a gigabyte well below a dollar. And we think that that's likely to continue going down. If you look at the example of GEO in India, that has historically been an important threshold for making these kinds of digital services affordable to a wider range of people and continue to expand the pie. So again, while it's not impossible that someone could come in, I think it would be difficult to do it in such a way where it really does uh, grievous damage to MTN. And relatedly, when you start talking about a company with 20 different markets roughly, coming into one market does not mean that you have the regulatory permissions, commercial relationships, et cetera, to threaten MTN in its other markets. It it certainly will increase your organizational capacity to try to compete, but you're not necessarily actually able to compete. So there's definitely a balance of threats, but even things like the macroeconomic circumstances, look, if the dollar continues to be strong for forever relative to emerging market currencies, then you absolutely could have an environment where inflation and dollar supremacy effectively mean that business doesn't grow in real terms from the perspective of a dollar-denominated investor. We don't really know how to have super strong opinions about that. I mean, this is something that people far smarter than me have really uh, spilled a lot of ink trying to opine on, and people seem to generally not get it right. It does seem to be hedgeable in some broad macro sense for people that are intrigued by this fundamental opportunity but are concerned about the challenges of a perpetually strong dollar on the business. And by the way, a strong dollar was easily the single largest headwind to a number of lines of business with MTN. So we don't want to say it's not an issue, just that it is, we think, something that can probably be hedged and also probably not something that's likely to be a permanent feature of the global economy. But that, again, above our pay grade.
0: The pandemic created a lot of volatility in the economics for tons of businesses. And before that, the global financial crisis was another economic shock to the system. I'd be curious from a macro perspective and a micro perspective, how African telcos performed through these periods of economic uncertainty. And also kind of in the midst of all that, the iPhone came onto the market and certainly disrupted the U.S. phone market. How is it relevant in the context of the African smartphone market? Yeah, this is something that I like to use
1: as a bit of a thought experiment because there's this idea that EMs are just impossibly volatile in a way that makes them borderline uninvestable or that these are tremendously fragile businesses and while again no business is perfect and we don't want to pretend that there's never going to be a cloudy day for these businesses they're a lot more resilient particularly the telcos than people want to give credit these are businesses that have survived through some challenging times over the last decade and have actually managed to grow subscribers quite strongly during that period although admittedly with often declining arpus before the data story really started to kick in but the big point that i we guess would make is these are businesses that have been growing really strongly through COVID. That's maybe not so surprising, just in the sense that COVID really encouraged the adoption of a lot of communications methodologies that were previously less central to people's day-to-day lives. But even now, now that COVID restrictions have really completely fallen out in every African country, these are businesses that are doing quite well in aggregate, particularly in terms of subscriber growth during what should objectively be the second or third worst macro period that they've experienced over the past 30 years. And we think that analogizes pretty well with the reality that the iPhone and broad smartphone adoption in general really started to inflect very positively in the West during the midst of the GFC. So while it's not a promise that it's going to be a perfect one-for-one analog, it seems as if when it comes to communications, technology, and equipment. Once the product market fit is there, and the price is at a workable level, the inflections can be really quite dramatic and sustain themselves even during difficult macroeconomic environments.
0: Thinking about a story like this, we've been kind of preconditioned to expect fintech and payment-oriented companies beyond the card networks to be unprofitable as they scale. How do you kind of frame, I guess, A, What's the profitability of this business look like today, but also into the future? How do you frame the upside of what this could look like 5, 10, 15 years from now? (laughs) This is one of the funny things.
1: MTN's fintech business, and same as with all of the other major African fintech businesses among the telcos, they're all profitable. They're all actually quite strongly profitable. MTN is just special because it's Again, by some measures, it's the largest at this point. It's certainly the largest at scale operating in multiple economies. But if you just use the numbers that management is guiding towards in terms of this separation, it looks like all in fully loaded EBITDA margins are going to be something like 35% and with very minimal CapEx needs. Management is focusing people on EBITDA margins seemingly because that's what a lot of telco analysts or preconditioned to focus on, and I can certainly understand that intellectually, but this is a very different reinvestment profile. Management is talking about sub-5% of revenue being required in terms of CapEx reinvestment, and we suspect it's going to be substantially below that. So what that winds up working out to, even with a really fully loaded tax structure and no optimization whatsoever, this is a business that could have net margins roughly twice what the rest of MTN's business has today. And as the incrementality continues to go up, and particularly with advanced services where the incrementality is quite high, that could actually trend substantially higher from here. But just to not put too fine a point on it, we think that just based on management's disclosure, the idea of saying that MTN FinTech is today a business doing more than $200 million of net profitability fully loaded for tax is certainly in line with management's guidance. And We think that there's a non-trivial amount of upside from there. In terms of what this could look like in the future, as you say, people are preconditioned on fintech to expect a lack of profitability, so the level of profitability here may be surprising. I wouldn't blame people if it were so, but the people are also preconditioned to assume that bad things are gonna happen in Africa, and they will to some extent, but if we can dream the dream for a second, if we were to just use the current mobile money profitability generated per user in Ghana, and apply that across MTN's entire African subscriber base, you would again on our math and assuming de minimis incrementality, even though we think that's there's likely to be pretty substantial incrementality, you'd increase earnings power by roughly 70 to 80 percent today. And that's assuming no incremental subscriber growth and no substantial growth of advanced services. As we've attempted to lay out today, we're pretty optimistic that both of those are likely to happen. The demographic growth seems inevitable. It's possible that MTN really fails to harness that. So wouldn't want to give you a specific subscriber number, but You can get a sense of when the stock of 18-year-olds in these countries are growing mid-single digits or higher every single year, just by dint of demographics, you can see how there's going to be a lot of digitally fluent young people who are really excited to get their hands on their first smartphone as soon as it's affordable to them and really actively engage in the digital economy. So, the idea that you're going to see a de minimis increase of advanced services and de minimis increase in the number of subscribers, we think is... Clearly not correct, but Ghana is far enough ahead of MTN's other markets just framing the profitability per user in their best market, we think is a sort of a good starting place for thinking about the impact on this thing, especially in the context of a business that we think could plausibly grow for many decades just on the basis of additional population growth and in a MasterCard or Visa kind of way if it gets fully established could be, have a toll-taking-like feature on the economy, especially as long as it continues to add incremental value into its ecosystem, which Serene talks about a lot, and certainly the team seems to be very focused on that as well.
0: And as is customary, our concluding question for these conversations, this is an extremely dynamic, interesting business that you've had the privilege of studying and experiencing. What are lessons you take away from your studies of this business as an investor, and the lessons that can be applied to other businesses in the emerging markets that can be borrowed from the MTN story.
1: Privilege is a good word to use because it's been really fun and really exciting to be looking at this business for the past several years. I'd looked at it before back in the mid 2010s in a very different context. And just really digging in deeply and spending a lot of time on the ground, visiting various markets, talking with local practitioners, has been extremely energizing and eye-opening in terms of just how rapidly things are changing on the ground in many of these markets. In terms of lessons for investors, you know, I would start by saying that U.S. markets are amazing and they're considered the best in the world for a reason. But the rest of the world really does have a fair number of opportunities that are worth studying. African demographics alone demand that investors start to have a view because it will be a huge driver on everything from consumer demand to popular culture to commodities for the rest of our investing lives, realistically. Relatedly, there's a narrative that innovation is really the preserve of the U.S., but emerging markets have had the ability to leapfrog and pioneer in a large number of areas, including things like mobile money, we think that story has really just begun. And you're seeing variations on that everywhere from, you know, certainly China, which has been incredibly rapid in finding ways of filling various low-end niches to Africa, to Southeast Asia, various parts of Latin America. And so whether you are a U.S.-focused investor that's looking to learn lessons from elsewhere or you're more focused on emerging markets, I think it's beginning to be a dated stereotype to assume that the only thing that emerging market economies have to offer are commodities and state-owned enterprises and other very sleepy organizations. There's definitely still plenty of that, but the world's increasingly changing and a lot of these markets are increasingly tilted towards information technology, information services. Finally, on the operator side, it's a really good question. i thought about it a lot since I did know that it was coming. I would just say that operators that are willing to thoughtfully build on their incumbency advantages, innovate and incorporate global best practices, they can radically change their local economies. The digital revolution is in its early innings globally. Hopefully that, if nothing else, that's clear from this conversation today, and it's creating a digital class of sophisticated young people in emerging economies around the globe. We focus on Africa today, but you can tell similar stories of enthusiastic TikTok users and home-trained programmers and a hundred other markets these people represent a new kind of consumer class, and they're a huge, barely-touched talent pool that's born digital and mobile first. We've watched companies that take these populations for granted have their franchises totally dismantled. Meanwhile, those that are willing to adopt and innovate on global best practices have been able to spin up multi-billion-dollar businesses shockingly quickly. And so while the U.S. is one of the, if not the economic center of the world by pretty much any measure, looking where the changes are happening fastest, we're not certain that it's only in Silicon Valley and other parts of the US economy that those kinds of important global changes sit. And increasingly, we suspect that you're going to have a lot of things to learn from these leapfrogging digital first businesses that are serving these consumers. So very exciting to watch and hopefully something that at least opens some operators' eyes to broadening their horizons. And and if they are emerging market-based, recognizing that where they are is not just a backwater, it's actually a source of really exciting opportunity
0: into the future. This is a fascinating story in a market that not a lot of investors in our audience are typically familiar with. So we thank you for helping to educate us, and we look forward to learning more about this business. Thanks, Zach. Really appreciate it.